We recognize the authority of this book. We treasure it as being that which is given by God Himself. And we revere it on that basis. We teach it. We defend it. We respect it. We read it. We study it. We write about it. Because it's from God and we honor it on that basis. We're glad you've joined us on the Truth Pulpit with Don Green, founding pastor of Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and we're about to conclude our series, How Did We Get the Bible?, with part two of a message titled, Early Christians and the Biblical Canon. Last time, Don offered the first two of four unique aspects of life in the early church to help us understand how God sovereignly decreed the canon we have today. First of all, the Old Testament canon made early believers well qualified to discern authentic revelation from falsehood. Secondly, the requirements of public worship created strong motivation to handle the scriptures very carefully. Today, our teacher will provide the final two points. So have your Bible open and ready, and let's join Don Green now in the Truth Pulpit. Point number three. This is a fun one. The refutation of heretics. The refutation of heretics. Proving heretics wrong. uh, Setting them aside. Showing them to be false. Led to the formation of the New Testament canon. This is the third impetus to clarify the canon. The early church was no different than our church today. Our church meaning speaking the true church broadly here in the 21st century not just Truth Community Church. They had to deal with false teachers. There were, there there are always, it is the nature of the spiritual battle that we are always going to be battling against those who try to dilute and confuse the people of God. The early church was no different. They had to deal with heretics. There was an influential heretic in the early second century named Marcion. And in AD 140, Marcion published his own list of the books that he considered to be canonical. He rejected the Old Testament. He rejected the writings of all the apostles except for Paul. And he tried to establish a church based on simply on the teaching of Paul. And he said that Paul had liberated Christians from the law and thereby severed the church, so-called, in quotes, from the Old Testament. That was law. Paul did away with the law, he said. And so he published his own list of authoritative books. And all that he included was an edited version of the Gospel of Luke and 10 of Paul's letters, leaving out First and Second Timothy and Titus. So Marcion here establishes a list that excludes many of the legitimate letters that were written at the time. Here early in the formation of the church in the early days. So, there's pressure coming from both directions. From one direction, you had forgeries that were trying to be added to the true books. That's what we looked at in the last point, you know, recognizing the true letters and excluding forgeries. Well, what's happening now for Marcion, the threat comes from the other direction. Marcion says, these books are not from God, 
And he takes, he takes legitimate revelation from God and casts it aside and says, that's not from God. Don't listen to that. That has no authority. So the threat's from the other direction. Forgeries tried to add to God's word. Marcion was taking away from God's word. And both, both problems, both issues had to be addressed. False writings, forgeries threatened to add unworthy books. Marcion tried to eliminate true books. And again, this is very early in the formation of the, you know, as the early church is just developing. And so the early church had to get more precise. They had to get more intentional about defining what is included and what is excluded. One writer, Donald Guthrie, who's written a standard work on New Testament introduction, said this, and I quote, he says, it may well have been in reaction to Marcion's position that the church generally came to view the necessity for a clearer definition of its own authoritative books. Christians needed to know what books could be appealed to as authoritative to test teaching. And you marvel when you think about this. You marvel at the greatness of the wisdom and the power of God that he used a heretic who was trying to undermine the work and revelation of God. He used a heretic in order to help clarify the nature of the true canon. The early church had to respond to that false assault on its writings And in so doing, recognizing the threat, they said, here's the list, here are the works that we believe. We include these even though Marcion rejected them. In responding to the early heretics, the Christians helped define what the true scope of the canon was. And so the reality of heretics and refuting them played into it. Final point for today, and this one's going to take a little bit longer to go through. Fourth and finally, the reality of persecution. The reality of persecution. And here we enter into and we, we tread upon some, a, a, special, a special room of the, of the holiness of God, you might say, a special room where we come with our shoes off and with a special deference to those who went before us in the Christian faith those who went before us in Christ and who paid a price for that which we hold precious today, the reality of persecution, the fourth impetus that helped define the true nature and the true extent of the canon. In A.D. 303, the Roman emperor was a man named Diocletian. People pronounce his name differently. Diocletian. He issued an order to go throughout the empire to destroy the Christian scriptures with fire. And with the power of the army, imperial police carrying out that order, the imperial police would visit church officials and they ordered them to hand over the sacred books in furtherance of this order from the emperor. One historian describes it in this manner. 
Christianity faced its most extensive and persistent ordeal of persecution between the years 303 and 311 under Diocletian and Galerius. In these years, the number of Christian victims exceeded all previous totals. Diocletian's determined attempt to curb the aggressive faith, meaning the spread of Christianity, was probably motivated largely by his general policy of imperial unity and restoration of order in the state. In 303, he published edicts ordering confiscation of church property, dismissal of Christians from civil offices, deprivation of their judicial rights, enslavement of all Christians of plebeian status, that is the lower class, arrest and imprisonment of the chief clergy, and destruction of the churches and their sacred books. He was going to stamp out Christianity in the Roman Empire, and he had a position of unparalleled and unchallenged authority to order this to be done. And so he sends out his minions, he sends out his police force in order to carry out his edict. This historian goes on to say, The extent of enforcement of the decrees varied, but despite the many martyrs among its leaders and the large number who fell away, the church emerged more thoroughly organized and aggressive than ever. You see, the pressure of persecution forced greater organization. It had a purifying effect. Those who were merely outwardly associated with the church but not truly converted, not truly committed to Christ, they fled from the persecution because who's going to die for that which they don't truly believe? Nothing's changed about that today. And so this order goes out and all of a sudden the the full power of the Roman Empire is being brought to bear on on these lovely Christians these noble, humble followers of Christ. And the emperor says, hand over your books or you will die. Hand over your sacred writings. Well, step back from it a moment and think about what that means. You know, most of you have multiple books. You have multiple copies of the Bible and you have other books. You have commentaries or things like that. So, If our government issued an order like that, hand over your sacred books, well, you would recognize that there's a distinction to be made, right? I will not hand over my Bible for you to destroy it. My copy of uh, Douglas Moo's commentary on Romans, you can have that because that's a lesser book than this. Well, the early Christians knew that they had to make that same kind of distinction. You see, they had a supreme and a surpassing loyalty to the Word of God, and they would not hand it over to a pagan emperor for him to destroy. And so they had to make a choice. They had to know what it was that they could hand over in satisfaction of conscience without betraying their loyalty to Christ and that which they could not hand over, that which they would hide, that which they would spill blood to protect. And this plays out. This played out in the lives of real people in real time. And Fox's Book of Martyrs 
has a lengthy summary of the martyrdoms under Diocletian, those people that, that died for the sake of the faith under his wicked rule. And here's one account of it. It's lengthy, but it is compelling, and I trust that you will bear with me as I read it to you. Let me remind you of what we're talking about. How is it that the New Testament canon was established? How was it recognized? We said, well, first of all, they they had the pattern of an Old Testament canon. They had the requirements of public worship. They had to refute heretics in order to be able to decide. And now here we're looking at how the reality of persecution shaped that. And here's one account, making a lengthy quote from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Timothy, a deacon of Mauritania, and Mara, his wife, had not been united together by the bands of wedlock above three weeks when they were separated from each other by the persecution. So they'd been married for three weeks. The persecution comes, and they're separated from one another. Timothy, being apprehended as a Christian, was carried before Arianus, the governor of Thebes, who, knowing that Timothy had the keeping of the Holy Scriptures, commanded him to deliver them up to be burnt. So Timothy has a copy of the Scriptures, and the local ruler under this edict from Diocletian says, hand him over to be burned. Timothy answered him, said, had I children... I would sooner deliver them up to be sacrificed than to part with the word of God. The governor, being much incensed at this reply, ordered his eyes to be put out with red-hot irons, saying, The books shall at least be useless to you, for you shall not see to read them. Timothy's patience under the operation was so great that the governor grew more exasperated. He, therefore, in order, if possible, to overcome Timothy's fortitude, ordered him to be hung up by his feet with a weight tied about his neck and a gag in his mouth. In this state, Mara, his wife, tenderly urged him for her sake to recant. But when the gag was taken out of his mouth... Instead of consenting to his wife's entreaties, Timothy greatly blamed her mistaken love and declared his resolution for dying for the faith. Said, he said, woman, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Your priorities are mistaken to urge me to recant. The consequence was that Mara resolved to imitate his courage and fidelity and either to accompany or follow him to glory. The governor, after trying in vain to alter her resolution, ordered her to be tortured, which was executed with great severity. After this, Timothy and Mara were crucified near each other, A.D. 304, end quote. You see, beloved, the church had to distinguish between the canonical books, which could not be handed over, and the books which could. Life and death decisions were at stake. 
torture was at stake based on what you said, what you did. Hand over Douglas Moo's commentary, no problem. Hand over Scripture, they testified by their lives that they'd rather have their eyes burned out of their head and be hung upside down and crucified rather than doing that. That helped establish the limits of the canon. These books we die for. The others, no. And the, the line, the boundary around the canon was, was made clear. There was a red line of blood drawn around the canon that we now hold so dear. All of these things helped establish the limits of the canon that we have received. Well, let's draw some conclusions here in the brief time that we have remaining here. What can we say about this? Well, let's, let's go directly and refute directly what the Catholic Church says. The Catholic Church says the church gave us the canon, that the church determined what books were there, and therefore that is the basis of, of it. And the ultimate authority, therefore, is not the books, is not the revelation of God, but the church which decided the canon in subsequent councils centuries later. That's absolutely false. That is not the historical reality whatsoever. The New Testament was not established by church councils several centuries after the books were written. No. The authority, these books, as we said, were self-authenticating. They were the Word of God at the moment they were written. All we're talking about here is the process by which that was recognized. So they did not become the Word of God because a church council pronounced them to be so centuries later. They were the Word of God from the beginning, and the church was simply catching up with the revelation of God in recognizing them and defining them. The church councils only recorded previously established decisions by the men who were in positions of spiritual leadership and access to information and commitment that made sure that they would make the right decisions. Now, there's something else that you've got to understand about that. Because we are not dependent on the decision of one council to determine or, or, or a false church like the Roman Catholics, I'm so glad that we're not dependent on the Roman Catholics to determine for us what God's Word is, aren't you? As if we had to go through Rome to know what God's Word is. Out on the suggestion. Out on the suggestion of something like that. And here's what I want you to see, beloved. This historical process that we have described here tonight, all so very imperfectly and inadequately, if you think about it, you will realize that this historical process is a far better attestation to the canon than what any one church council could do. Think about it. You know, I, I described a process. The books were written starting in about 50 A.D. and a process that goes for 350 years to 400 A.D. Over, over three and a half centuries. Now listen to me. What does this tell us? What does this tell us? How does this give us confidence in the historical process that delivered the canon to us today? Beloved, just think. Just think. Many men over many centuries from many locations affirmed the recognition of the canon. 
There are a multitude of witnesses, all pointing in the same direction, that affirm the Bible that you hold in your hands. That is a far better process than one point in time by one limited council. We have the testimony of God's people through centuries where, and then their decisions were recorded as final. That multitude of witnesses is, you know, it's, it's one thing, think about it. Think about it just in terms of a court case or something like that. You have one witness and everything depends on that witness. Well, if his credibility is undermined, your case is gone. But when you've got centuries of witnesses and and hundreds if not thousands of men paying the price of their life and leading public worship and dealing with heretics, beloved, there's no question to be had. What you need to understand is that decisions regarding the canonicity of these books were not lightly made. They were not, they were not, and, and they were not arbitrarily made. As if somebody looked and said, this is what we want taught, and and therefore a preconceived notion of what they wanted to be taught would determine the books that were chosen, and therefore only the books that lined up with what they wanted taught would be it. That's not it. That is not the way the process worked. The conduct of church meetings, the content of the Christian faith, and the lives of Christians were at stake as these this process of recognition was being made. And now, 1,700 years later, at the end of the process, 1,600 years later, what do we do? What can we say? We look back and we can say this, that God providentially guided His people. Guided His people, watch this. Guided them through the actions of wicked people. A wicked heretic destroying God's Word. A wicked Roman emperor, wickedly torturing and killing people for the sake of God's word. God using what they intended for evil in order to bring about a good result that we would walk in the wake of. Here we meet in peace and in comfort in a climate-controlled room carrying forth the the reward and, and enjoying the benefit of what these people paid for with their own blood at the hands of wicked people. And it was through this process that God established for all time the boundaries of His revelation, the boundaries of His self disclosure. You find God in these 27 books of the New Testament and in no others. Today, we do not add to it. Today, we do not subtract from it. Rather, what we do is this, beloved. We recognize the authority of this book. We treasure it as being that which is given by God Himself. And we revere it on that basis. We teach it. We defend it. We respect it. We read it. We study it. We write about it. Because it's from God and we honor it on that basis. And in addition to that, we are humbled by the fact that better men than us, better women than us, noble, courageous, godly people 
years ago had their veins burst and their blood spilled in order to keep this word precious, unviolated, pure, having received it from from their forebears, keeping it for their generation, and handing it to the next as they pass off the stage. And we respect this word because of the river of blood that helped deliver it to us. This book, precious. And we are faithful to God as we are faithful to the canon. As you've seen from our just-concluded series, How Did We Get the Bible?, the early church was anything but haphazard in their adoption of biblical canon. Pastor Don Green will have another compelling series getting underway next time here on The Truth Pulpit, and we hope you'll be with us. But Don, since the reliability of the Bible is so well established, why do falsehoods about it continue to abound outside the church? Well, Bill, that's a very important question. And I think if we remember what Scripture says about the nature of Christianity, we can understand why we face these issues, not just outside the church, but within the church, a battle for the authority of God's Word. It helps us to remember that the Bible says we're in a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. Satan and his demons are actively working at all times to try to undermine our confidence in Scripture. He blinds men and points them away from God's Word through false philosophies. We don't need to despair, though. Greater is he who is in us than who is in the world. And so our prayer is that the truth pulpit would undergird your faith so that you could continue to be strong in Christ. Thanks, Don. And friend, remember to visit thetruthpulpit.com for more great resources. That's thetruthpulpit.com. I'm Bill Wright, and we'll see you back here next time on The Truth Pulpit.